Welcome to the Korean American Perspectives podcast, where we explore the triumphs and challenges of the Korean American experience and examine different sides of complex issues that shape our community. We thank you for tuning in and hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Korean American Perspectives podcast. My name is Abraham Kim. I'm the host of this podcast. And today we have a very special episode for you. To kick off CK's arts, culture, entertainment, and sports initiative, we have Chang Rae Lee, who's a celebrated Korean American novelist and who just released his newest novel, My Year Abroad. To speak with him, I will actually be handing the mic over to Dr. Stephanie Han, a member of CKA, and also an author, educator, and speaker. In this episode, Chang Rae Lee and Stephanie Han take a deep dive into My Year Abroad and explore the psyche of the book's colorful characters, their wild journeys, and the Asian American experience. They also connect these discussions with Chang Rae's personal life as a Korean American immigrant, his identity formation, his colorful career, and even how food plays an important role in his writing. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversation with Chang Rae Lee and Stephanie Han. So welcome, Chang Rae Lee. I'm very excited that you're able to share your insights about My Year Abroad, which is a fantastic read. I loved it and your writing journey with the Korean American community. My first question has to do with this idea. You dedicated this book to the teachers in your life, obviously, and I felt like this was a theme you actually have explored a lot in a lot of your books, how we learn from each other and who teaches us what and how we make sense of our life and our circumstance. And so I, what I'm curious about is what led you to explore this dynamic further with this particular ethnic, racial, and social makeup of this pair of Pong, this much older Chinese immigrant. And then we have this you know, 12 percenter young Tiller who reads probably as white, but claims some Korean blood. And I was wondering if you could maybe speak to this and how this might have, you know, influenced this teaching student thing. You know, there's always multi-layered and, and complicated dynamics between characters, but I knew that a primary one between these two would be one of mentorship. But it comes from something that I always think about when, especially when I finish a book, to tell you the truth, you know, I don't finish many. And I always think back to all the people who had helped me get to the place where I am in terms of my work, and the ways in which I think about my work, the ways in which I think of myself as a teacher, the ways, you know, all those things. And, and I know that goes back to the very beginning when, you know, when we first came to the country, and my mother uh, and father, although of course very educated and very interested in my education, didn't really have a sense of how I should be educated. And so depended so much upon my teachers and also very much so my, the librarians in our community. And I remember my mother dropping me off at the library every day for three or four hours and basically allowing them to guide me 
in my you know journey in intellectual and cultural life. And I bring that up just because it's part of my life, but also because it's part of what this book is about. It's about being introduced to a way in the world, not just to places and not just to other people, but a way to think about oneself, a way to think about oneself in a context, and then also, of course, how to begin making oneself, especially constructing a self when the culture around you isn't one that necessarily recognizes you uh, for all the things that all your legacies, all your traditions, all the things that you come from. And so it was absolutely something that I thought would be central to the novel, given that, given the trajectory and the kinds of story that, that I was going to pursue in this novel, which is a story about adventure, I suppose, but really all adventures are adventures about the travel of a, of a consciousness and a psyche through, through his or her life. And that's what really all novels are about. Mm -hmm. I'm very curious, however, about the choice to make in terms of the background of these characters, who and what they are. I mean, I guess I'm looking a bit at China as a global force and the narrative of this older Chinese man. And then the reality of what immigration might result in, which is the sort of physical dissipation of visible Asian identity, right? And so I didn't know if you could speak to this. I mean, we're looking at Asia, but then through the eyes of somebody who has been removed from it, and yet there's this tension. And I didn't know, you know, in terms of learning and knowledge, what you might think about this. Well, the choice to make the narrator of the novel, this young fellow, Tiller, one-eighth Asian, was absolutely deliberate. And as you suggest, he, he's someone who has always passed in his life in the mainstream, not to be anything special, in fact, the opposite, to be unnoticed. And so that he could just go along and not think about, not have to think much about his you know, ethnic or racial legacies. But I did want him to be someone, particularly a younger person, who was just at the cusp of beginning to ask lots of questions about that, about you know, who's in his background, in, in his case, his mother. But also that I wanted to open him up to beginning to think about and to be engaged with the idea that part of him, part, part of the streams, and you know, we all have different streams going through us genetically and culturally and everything else, but that, that part of those dreams for him do take him towards Asia. And, and so it's no accident in the novel that he finds this particular newcomer immigrant, a Chinese fellow, who's not really Chinese American. He's been described that way, but I don't really consider him Chinese American. I consider him a, a global figure, a global uh, diasporic figure who has his own identity in a way, but of course is astride Asia and, and, and feels most comfortable there. And, and this, I think, is, is what Tiller has been looking for in his life. I think he's found that there's been an emptiness and void in his life that he can't quite, that is a little mystifying to him and he, and he can't quite put a finger on. And I think hooking up with this fellow Pong uh, begins to solidify certain notions about who he might be how he should model himself, um, you know, it, from, from you know, philosophical ideas, but also just like, you know, there's a scene in the book where they're kind of doing like a Korean shower thing where they're kind of kneeling and, and he's looking and he, you know, he, he has fun with it, but 
but he also kind of thinks of it seriously as, huh, is this a tradition that I should follow, even though it's just a, a modest human one? So those are the kinds of things that I wanted him to think about as he, as he began his journey into this wider world. Yeah, I was curious. There's this great quotation. I'm going to skip a little head in the karaoke scene where they're all singing. And then Tiller says he noticed this brother-sisterhood vibe in the room. And elsewhere, he's experiencing this kind of idea of being subsumed by this Asian consciousness. Yet, he does not read as Asian. So what is the conflict of this? What is it that he's tapping into, potentially? And I also thought was curious and totally fascinating was that this wasn't a Chinese idea or particularly a Korean idea of an Asian group. This was a pan-Asian group. All the men in there, they're from Sri Lanka, they were Chinese, they were, you know, all these different groups and people and that evening. And I was thinking, this is an Asian American kind of conception of a group, but yet, you know, so I, I didn't know if you could speak to that idea of like, how do we find our group? What is, what is that group? And what is that feeling? Is that a different feeling? Well, I mean, just talking outside the novel, I think we, we find our groups in the ways that we find out anything about life, which is there, you know, our, our experiences are particular to us. And, you know, my Korean American experience, as I always say, is very particular to me and to my, you know, my family, say my sister and my small group of friends. In my Korean American experience, for example, was vastly, profoundly different from those of my cousins who lived as the crow flies, maybe 15 miles away, but in an ethnic enclave, surrounded by other Asian people with a different primacy of certain languages, different kinds of cultures at school. Whereas I grew up in a place that was an Italian American and Irish American Catholic neighborhood, where we were one of you know, three families who were, who were non-white. We started out at the same place, but, but the context is so powerful. And that's what I always want to, for people, you know, particularly my students, when they ask me, you know, I said, you can ask me about my experience, but interrogate and investigate your own in, the, in, the, in, in all the, you know, in all the micro ways. And, and that's where you'll find the ways in which you've been formed and that you're forming things back right? It's not just this passive experience. Uh, we respond to it. And, and so in the book, because Tiller is, you know, one-eighth Asian and, and curious about that, I didn't want him to focus on one particular nationality, one particular line. This probably comes directly from my moving out to the West Coast five years ago, I think. You know, again, I grew up in a, in, in a fairly mainstream white community and and larger and a larger culture that was intellectually so and uh, culturally so, but moving out to San Francisco and spending as much time as I could in, in Hawaii, uh, I feel like I'm in just much more of an Asian inflected realm, a realm that is not perfect by any means, but but that does have different kinds of engagements, different kinds of pressures, different kinds of welcoming, all those things. And certainly for me, something that felt uh, a, like a different kind of comfort level than, than what I'd grown up with for you know, 50 years of my life. So in some ways this reflects you know, what happens in the book is it's a coming of age book and also kind of a midlife crisis book 
And I guess it's a book that aligns with, you know, who I am at this moment as well, which is maybe I'm growing into something new too, you know, out here uh, that, I, that I didn't have before, uh, which I like. So I wanted to ask, I feel that, especially from your last dystopian novel and this one, there's a definite shift. I'm thinking this, as you said, this might have to do with your move to the West Coast, but there's a definite different feeling. I feel like there's, I'm witnessing a pivot of your lens to Asia and to this kind of global question of how we intersect. And so I'm curious about your research trips, your process, you know, karaoke here in Shenzhen or foot massage, the electronics in the mall, like from the way you write, I know that you you took those journeys. And I'm curious, did you uh, start out writing and then you journeyed or did you journey and then get inspired because your lens has definitely shifted? Well, you know, On Such a Full Sea uh, grew out of, this is my previous novel that has a uh, an Asian element to it for sure. And in fact, I would say people ask me, I think it's my most Asian American novel. It's about an Asian American community. And in some ways that community is kind of Hawaii. Um, but, But it's my second novel that's focused on China in a way that uh, I I was originally going to do a novel about Chinese factory workers. I ended up writing this dystopian novel that included some production factory workers in a speculative, you know, context. But I guess I wasn't finished with it. And, and I had a friend back in Princeton, who is the model for for the Chinese businessman Pong Lu. And I, you know, I really enjoyed him and enjoyed hearing his stories and wonderful fellow. But, but again, I was wrapped by, you know, the, the way in which he saw himself, I guess, in the world which is not anything like my growing up, how we kind of felt as immigrants. You know, again, we're not in an immigrant enclave. We did feel as if we were alienated a little bit, not because people were mean to us, just because we didn't know the language very well. We didn't know the customs very well. We didn't have a safety net financially. And so we're a little bit, frankly, cowed, you know, very careful, very wary of outsiders, wary of doing the wrong thing. But this fellow, this fellow who Pong Lu is based on, absolutely different sense of himself in the world, a sense of possibility. And that sense of possibility and ambition was something that I felt like, boy, maybe I, I'd lost that sense of ambition and possibility, you know, being settled and comfortable in my life. And of course, we've been hearing so much about the Asian tigers and the, and the, the rise of Asian power, particularly, you know, led by China, of course, which of course is inexorable and inevitable. And we all see where it's going, right? This will be a Chinese world and also an Asian world too. We're not even talking about India yet. So it's, uh, it's I think, a recognition on my part uh, of what I've been feeling, which is that this is probably the, the, the last American century. And that we as Americans, and I consider myself American and patriotic in all the ways, but I think we have to recognize how the world is changing, how the positions are changing, and the ways in which maybe American exceptionalism also has to change our ideas about that. And I find that just very interesting. Of course, as a novelist, uh, those have ultimately for me, as you know, you know, for you, I'm sure the implications are, end up being uh, singular and personal you know, in, in, as, as expressed in, in, 
individual people characters. So did you feel that Korea then as a nation and its issues and did that figure a lot into your development growing up? You know, you're talking about China, obviously, um, we're the Council of Korean Americans, so I'm going to ask you a little bit about Korea. And I'm just curious, I know that um, you wrote that your dad was from Pyongyang, so that tie would have been cut, but did you grow up visiting Korea? Did you go to language school? How Korean were you, in other words? And what does that mean, actually? Yeah, well, that's a good question. You know, we arrived in America in 1968. Our first trip back to Korea was in 1980. So, so that uh, quite, a, quite a few years, and only would have been in the first few years that w- would it have been because we didn't have enough money. My father is a physician, a psychiatrist, he was. So as, at some point, you know, he was able to make a decent living. And, but I think, uh, you know, maybe because my father was from the North and, and partly that's why I think he and some of his classmates from medical school in Korea decided to make a new life here. I think they felt that maybe there was a glass ceiling for people from the North, as I think a lot of people in Korea feel from different quarters of the country. So we grew up without really any relatives. You know, we, we would have relatives visit every once in a while, but we were essentially alone for, for much of our lives until after 1980, uh, some relatives came over, but we didn't even see them that much then. They lived in different parts of the country, some in Canada. And so I think, sure, my parents went to a Korean church in Queens, you know, it was an hour drive, but they weren't really religious people. They were just interested in communing with other Koreans and hanging out afterwards for tea and stuff, as I did. It was a life that inside the house was intensely Korean. But of course, it was the Korea of 1968 that my parents brought over. It never really changed, for better or worse, because they, they were also cut off from things that are Korean. You know, I, I think that would be very difficult today, given all the me- Korean media, technology, Skype, Zoom, everything like that. So th- I don't know that there were very many phone calls. And so when I saw my grandparents for the first time, Although I, you know, I've been born in Korea, but I was a child, a baby. It was amazing to think that that was the first time I, I really saw them. But did I really get to know them? No, I really didn't. So I would say that we, we had a, a quite a Korean upbringing and a Korean sense of ourselves, but we felt a little bit marooned, I suppose. And part of that was intentional for whatever reason for my parents. Coming of age, a lot of um, young Korean Americans, this is when they rush headlong into identity formation, joining Asian American groups and trying to figure out who they were, do the homeland tour, do all that. Was that something then you felt propelled to do or not? And I didn't know if you could speak to that maybe. I went to boarding school, which at that time I went to Exeter, which now I think is 25% Asian uh, or something, some huge number like that. You went to Andover, I know. It's probably very similar. So, but of course we went to school at a very different time when there were just a handful of Asians, a handful of Koreans. And so I think we, you know, although there, there were friendships there, it wasn't for me, at least in my experience, um, I did not gravitate towards Korean groups just because it wasn't my life or my interest at the time. Not that I didn't have Korean friends, but, but I suppose I wasn't in say the Korean club and just there. And that was fine at the time. It seemed, it seemed suitable to me. But I think as I 
got a little older after particularly uh, in college and then particularly after college, I started to, to see more and hang out more with my Korean friends from, from youth um, and new friends that we met. And, and I think it's been a, it's kind of a gradual uptick of all that kind of activity. And not just, not just being, with, but it actually you know, thinking about it and talking about it and you know, being conscious of it. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, not growing up, say, in you know, an ethnic enclave like Queens or LA Koreatown or something like that, I always was very conscious of it, right? I mean, if you, if you grow up in a community where you totally belong and everyone looks like you, you don't think about it. It's just life, right? <laughs> um, not that much. But I think about it all the time because it's, it's not, quote unquote, natural for me, you know, in the way that I grew up. And that's probably also what contributed to my interest when I started writing to think about those, those issues. Because, you know, identity, of course, is a, is a really complicated thing. It, it, it can make you feel good to say, no, this is who I am. These are my, these are my legacies. But at some point, right, that's just, you know, a contrivance too, right? Because we choose who we are, right? We can't choose our blood, but we choose who we are. And in every, in every aspect of our lives, I guess I ended up doing that. And when students talk to me about that, and I, I teach a class at, at Stanford called Asian American Autobiography, where the students are just writing about their families, their backgrounds, all the things, you know, about their sexuality, about, about their, their schooling, about their parents mostly. And, and I think they come into the class thinking, okay, this is going to help me figure out who I am. But what ends up happening in the class is they end up realizing there's, there's a, a whole new host of questions <laughs> that they have to start asking themselves. Because once you dig into it, once you actually get into those details that have all these little you know, adjacent details and corollaries, and it, I mean, it's, it's endlessly complicated. And, and, and again, and I think that's a good thing. It's endlessly complicated, but it becomes more and more distinctive to that person. Not that we don't have commonality. We absolutely do. You know, I have very close Korean buddies here. We have so much commonality. We love hanging out together. But of course, our experiences to this point where we're having a beer at the, at the golf club, totally different. And our, and our worldviews may be even totally different. But we've come to a place where oh, we do have a sense of brotherhood, sisterhood, community. Um, but again, that sense of brotherhood, community, and sisterhood, probably different between us, right? Different, different things that we're appreciating, focusing on. And that's cool. That's great. This is great. And this is uh, another question that kind of touches on this is your interest in food, which is long abiding. It appears in all of your writing with great gusto. It's really fun to read your food writing. And um, I was thinking about food and how it manifested in terms of the relationship. You know, there aren't any good meals between Tiller and Clark, his dad, you know, <laughs> not any memorable good ones. I mean, and I think that's something about the relationship. Yeah. <laughs> something about the relationship, right? But yet there's these food adventures with Pong. And then of course with you know Val and Vige, it's about food. And so I was wondering if you could speak to 
something about food and, you know, what, what does food do? How do you see food in your life? What is the role of food for you? And in this book. I mean, let's face it. I, and I don't know if it's because we're all Korean or Asian or something, but we know what, what food really means, right? I mean, it should taste great and we should love it. And it, we can talk about it endlessly about different ingredients, different methods. But ultimately, it's about connection and it's about memory. And it's about, you know, just, it's about blood and guts. And that's why it doesn't have to be the most fancy food or the, or the most quote unquote tasteful food. Someone asked me the other day, what, um, like, what was my Madeleine moment? And, and one of the dishes that my mother would make me when I was a little boy uh, would be just like, you know, kind of uh, watery rice kind of warmed up, not juke, but just kind of rice with hot water on it, basically. And then she would cut up little pieces of ham, like, you know, deli ham or bologna. And I would put that in a spoon and, and have that. And boy, doesn't that sound kind of awful, but uh, no, no, no kanjang, no, not, nothing, no, no, <laughs> no chengudim, nothing. But, but I must say, I always think about that. I, I, I don't think I've had it since I was eight years old, but I always think about it. And so why do I think about it? You know, because I think about the way that our kitchen was, how, you know, she had things arranged. I can see her preparing that. I can see also more deeply into it, some of her happiness and frustrations. I can remember that. I can remember my sister sitting there, not wanting the same thing. I can remember that whole apartment and that whole time. And that's not just because I'm a novelist and think about these things. That's what we all do. You know, I may be more explicit about thinking about those things and seeing them than maybe other people are because maybe I'm just more practiced at that. But that's what food really is. You know, food's a, an opportunity for a moment of real connection and engagement with the world. Sometimes it's not a, fun, it's, it's not a happy one. You know, I can remember certain things that ping me in a difficult way with the certain meals. And because it's something that we do every day, and some of us do more than three times a day, <laughs> and, and I know my daughters too, you know, that's how, you know, they arrange and organize not just their day, but in some ways their memories, you know, in some ways our lives. And, and of course, it's no accident that we grew up in a Korean family. And, and that's where a lot of this stuff happened. Uh, and, you know, some of that's cultural, as we know. In some Korean families, as ours was, was not super talkative. But, you know, we did talk at the table. Other kinds of families might do it over gin and tonic on the porch. <laughs> we didn't do that. My parents didn't drink. Um, uh, I do that now with my daughters. But, <laughs> uh, but we, you know, we did that over, you know, in, in that basement of that church, just having some you know, kind of stale duck and some not so great tea. But boy, I can smell that whole place and I can see all the people. So, so it really is the stuff of life for me. I'm also interested you're exploring here through the, the drink, the special drink. I don't want to be a spoilers for everybody, but there's a, a trade and a business that's going on and there's a sort of a, an elixir of a health drink. And um, it, there's an exploration here of the wellness industry. And I always thought that actually the contemporary wellness industry is like a mild watered down Asia import. You know, it's, 
it's everything that we associate with wellness from green tea to like yoga, stretching to be thankful. And you're not, you know, it's, it's not the monotheistic idea. These are all Asian philosophies, exercises, practices, products. And I was just wondering a bit about some of the paradoxes or the myths that you were trying to get to with drum and the yogis and yeah I mean it was pretty funny I mean this book is really really funny this is the funniest book that you've written and it's you know there's it's sort of a take no prisoners you don't spare anybody so I was wondering if you would talk a little bit about that I you know I do yoga not in a serious way but just to stretch out my bad back and like everybody else you know uh, I want to be well <laughs> But of course, you know, I do poke fun at, at the idea of wellness. And a character in the book says, all you Americans, you're always worried about wellness. There are bigger problems <laughs> you're thinking about here. It's, it's not just your blood pressure, right? It's, it's everything else. So that's something that, of course, and I wanted to poke fun at, you know, the longstanding cultural appropriation that's gone on with the exotification of the East and its, you know, ancient wisdom, quote unquote, and have fun with that. But also, but also say something about the kind of, unfortunately, um, chronic condition of illness in our world and the way in which our civilization is always ill, <laughs> you know, from the world, the climate, to our politics, to gender dynamics, to every, everything you know, that we, that there's something off that we're constantly trying to put a new bandaid on and, and trying to look for that magic thing, you know, that elixir, that, that, that immortality drug, uh, which is what, um, uh, you know, discussed in the book a little bit, but of course, that's just a mask and um, a veil for, for, for what the real problem is, which is, uh, you know, something much more systemic. So it, in some ways is a critique of, you know, our, our westernized civilization, our westernized world. Frankly, you know, we all know all those things. I don't have to go through them, but, but you know, of course, just wanted to have some fun with it in the book. You talked a little bit about your journey. Um, you went to Exeter and then there was a bit about your, I read an essay about your mother's a little bit anxiety about you, going off, you know, you're moving farther away and, you know, you became something maybe that she wouldn't have been able to conceive of, right? You know, you went on to Yale and then apparently you were for a year on Wall Street. I also read you worked at the Capitol. So I was going to ask about that, what office you were for at the Capitol. That's what somebody said. And you said you did a bunch of part-time jobs while you were writing your novel. And I thought a lot about tillers because I thought, I bet he was a dishwasher at one point. I mean, just your description of Tiller. And I, I think that there's a lot of focus now on young people doing the right internship, doing the right thing, um, a lot of pre-professionalization at a young age, a lot of fears and anxieties that parents have that could maybe, they're well-founded fears, but inhibit a kind of exploration. So what are all the things that you did before you became <laughs> Chang Reilly, the novelist we know? <laughs> well, I, I was a dishwasher. It wasn't a, it was a summer job, um, you know, classic high school summer job. And it was the most disgusting job I ever had. Uh, but I, 
I did. And, and if people read the book, they'll, they'll see that, you know, it's, uh, I had some fun with it too, but, but, you know, I, I thought that job was actually pretty valuable to me. Uh, you, cause you meet all sorts of people from every walk of life. Um, you, and, and basically, especially for, for someone who, whose, you know, work now depends on understanding things about people and, and uh, observing as many people as possible, which I, th frankly, I think probably a lot of industries you know, would, you know, would, would lead to, would lead to some expertise in some, in a lot of industries. Uh, it, it was a job that, that, you know, as I said, it, I think in the book, you know, it, you're shat upon every day, but, but at the end you survive. And at the end, you know, you learn something about yourself and you learn something about, uh, you know, just sticking your head in there and just keep pushing. Um, I, when I was trying to write my book after I quit my Wall Street job, which wasn't a bad job at all, but I, you know, I, I did it for all the reasons that, you know, we all, you know, what kind of thing you're talking about, you know, trying to, to get our kids in the most, you know, elite and, you know, remunerative and successful kind of lines. And, and of course, I, we all understand why, right? It's, it's a tough world out there and that's totally honorable. But, but I, I ended up, you know, I painted apartments. I wrote for a downtown free, you know, for a free press, you know, I did little food reviews and restaurant articles. And, um, you know, I, so I, I, I was the, uh, this was my favorite job. I was the, um, the assistant to the Dean at the Fashion Institute of Technology. That was, I, I did that for four hours a day and saw all these crazy people, you know, designers and, and uh, but, but again, it, it was stuff that, um, yeah, at the time I just needed money and I did whatever I could. Uh, but boy, do I remember every detail of those jobs. Um, and and I and I like what you say about the pre-professionalization of everything. You know the, the importance of just the right internship. Um, and, and I and I always think you're going to be doing this job for the rest of your life. Um, just just go out and whatever you're going to do, do a great job at it. You know, see the whole thing, really throw yourself into it. Um, and I'm sure it won't be anything but 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 valuable. And, um, and I, and I, but of course it's, it's mostly the parents, right. Who, <laughs> who pressure, who, who, who are the, the sources of pressure, uh, and worry and, and the kids just take that up. If we weren't so worried about it and said, Hey, you know, go out, go out and make a living, you know, <laughs> go out and, and, you know, go out and, and, and don't depend on any allowance and then see what, see what you can come up with. And I bet you you know, they'd come up with something pretty darn interesting. So do you think Tiller is kind of an ideal then for, I mean, Tiller's a very, you know, Tiller's doing all the stuff that you're talking about, right? I wouldn't say he's an ideal. I think maybe he's a little reckless, <laughs> a little headlong. I think he courts danger a little too much. Uh, so I wouldn't want that for my own daughters. But, um, but I, I do think that that um, not worrying so much about, especially if you're from a family that has some means. And I'm not talking about super rich. I'm just talking about just, you know, can take care of itself. Um, uh, this, is the, this is the last opportunity to, to actually engage with, 
you know, what's really going on in the world and, and, how, and how most of the world spends its day. Um, and, that's, and that's part of what the book is about, is about, yeah, it's, it's you know, fantastical at times, it's intense, intensified at times, but, but the whole book is about trying to get this young fellow out in the world so he can see all the aspects of it and how all those little facets reflect back on him and how he takes those in. What does he learn from every single one? I don't know, but he, he's learning something, I hope. And I think that I, I, I sort of, I, I suppose I subscribe to that idea for, for just one of our kids doing whatever. You know, my daughter worked at a luggage store last, you know, before the pandemic and she didn't really want the job. And, but boy, she turned out to be pretty good at selling luggage. <laughs> you know, they gave her a big prize and, and she, it shocked her in fact. And, and uh, I think, uh, I, I, I'm sure that's going to be valuable for her in whatever she ends up doing. Mm -hmm. And so um, these are some, some of the questions that came up and then I might revert to another one, but this question was like about your own idea of Korean heritage as you're passing it down. How Korean are your kids and how do you feel about that? I, do they claim the Korean identity or? Well, my wife is not Korean. Uh, she's Anglo-European-American and um, so they're half. Um, I would say that they, as they've gotten older though, I think they, they definitely have identifying more and more with Korean culture, Korean food, Korean, you know, media, uh, you know, my, my younger daughter's totally into BTS late, late in her life. She's 20. <laughs> uh, so, and she's having a lot of fun with that. So, so, the, and that is really nothing to do with, with me and us, um, you know, we, I didn't send them to Korean school. Um, I do hope that, you know, that my younger daughter who's still in college will, you know, she's planning on spending a semester in, in Korea and studying there. So I'm happy about that. And, but I've never pushed them very much. I think I just uh, let it kind of happen. And, um, and I see that it is happening. Um, and again, I, I, didn't, I didn't want to try to curate that experience for them too much, you know. Um, when things are done like that, I, I, I just don't think you'd pay attention as much. And, and I think once they get an interest in something and particularly my, my older daughter's, you know, really into cooking, Korean foods. And, uh, and she also wants to spend a time in Korea now. Um, she talks about that even though she's in the working world. Um, uh, so, you know, where that came about and how that has come about, I can't really uh, trace, but, uh, but it's happened. And there's a question about um, seeing a different side of your personality, which I also thought with this book, there's this, uh, you know, kind of, it's humorous, it's funny. It, I mean, I read many people think it's over the top, but I think you really captured a certain energy and vitality of what it means to encounter these things for the first time. It's, it seems very accurate, not over the top at all. And then um, I was curious, it said, uh, one of the questions is about your personality and, you know, a different side of you. And what is it that prompted you all of a sudden it's this young narrator doing these pretty out there things. This is, we're taken into this different space and you can see the trajectory from On a Full CV now, but 
I mean, why did you go this route? And are, are we gonna, is it gonna be more and more this way? Is this, and I'm wondering actually too, how this is connected to your um, being here in the West and like, are you more comfortable? My previous novels have, you know, dealt with some pretty heavy things, you know, uh, historical, you know, Korean war, sexual slavery, um, um, you know, with the Chongjinde, the, you know, really like serious, um, you know, pretty intense uh, reckonings of identity. And so those books, um, you know, they, they have some moments of, of lightness, but they're pretty serious books. You know? they, and, and so the, I, you know, just because of the, of the subject matter and, and what I was thinking about, um, you know, there's a certain modality that goes with those books. And, and those, those modalities didn't necessarily include, you know, my daily kind of just, you know, private human life and personality. Um, I just, it, it, not that those couldn't have gone in there, just, I just had no interest. And so this, this particular novel, um, because of what it's about, and and because it's this younger fellow, I felt as if, and because I was also feeling maybe this kind of newness, sense of newness, and and, and a sense of renewed possibility, perhaps moving out to the West Coast, new job, uh, kind of starting over, which was absolutely intentional. I was very happy at Princeton professionally. Um, so in some ways, it 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 it's a new adolescence for me. Uh, but maybe a cultural adolescence, ethnic adolescence. And, uh, and so I, I'll, I think I invited in, particularly because of the character, um, you know, more of who I am just day to day. The, my, you know, the kind of play of my thoughts, the range of them, the kinds of language, high and low, that, that's me. And so I don't know if, that will continue. I think it just depends on the book. You know, I, th I think it really does depend on the book. Uh, but but I, I, I will say that I, I enjoyed it. You know, I enjoyed this different kind of uh, exertion, if, if, if that's a, the word for it, um, a different kind of stance, I guess, and, and uh, aesthetically. And so, so um, I'm glad to have found it. And, and to and to have been able to 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 explore it in in you know in my work you've been really um, chronicling a lot of um, and sort of detailing Asian American male masculinities you know what does it mean to be an Asian American man what is what is manhood how does um, one define masculinity and I was curious, I thought Tiller is actually quite a feminist, a young feminist, um, asking questions about his role and, um, you know, curious in that way. So I didn't know if you could speak. Is this, um, do you feel that your portrayals are the same? They've shifted. Do you see Asian American masculinity as shifting now, Korean American masculinity? Is it you know, how have you, how do you think about that when you're writing, if at all? 
Well, you know, in this in this particular book, yeah, I think he's he's um, I think he's very conscious of how the women in his life and in his encounters, um, how they're feeling and thinking. And if that makes him a feminist, fantastic. if that makes him a humanist fantastic and um and maybe that's you know that's as much of it um i think so much of so much of um you know what what goes what goes you know awry is that you know we we can't imagine the other we can't imagine um you know a different worldview or different um a sense of self in a context and um and are so locked in um you know to our private um egotistical you know position and um or egoistical position and uh and so yeah uh, i don't know if that's anything i i don't i don't have a uh, a big a big agenda or a thing about male mass you know it, it particularly asian male masculinity but uh, but I, but I must say that I'm so happy to see so many more, particularly in the mass media and in Hollywood and TV, more portrayals of Asian males and Asian females that are, you know, different, nuanced, interesting, um, uh, that they allow people to be people rather than types. And, and so, it, uh, that's, and I think that's so important for, you know, all of us, especially the younger people who, who are, you know, as younger people do, and maybe even older people, we, we have this negotiation all the time, we're modeling ourselves, we're like, is that who I am? Is this who I am? Is it, you know, is that how I should be? Um, and even if we don't admit it, those questions always, and those, those little frictions are always there. And uh, so to see more of them where that they're varied and, and positive, and, and again, distinctive, uh, rather than, uh, you know, somehow standardized or, or uh, normative uh, or stereotyped or racist, um, uh, I think is great. This was so great to hear from you. I could ask so many more questions in detail about the book. I just think it had a lot of energy. It was really fun. And I think it was spot on in terms of a, a global picture of what's unfolding now. And also, kind of an invitation for young people to explore and to take risks of the heart per se. And so I really appreciated that. Thanks so much, Stephanie. Thank you for tuning into the Korean American Perspectives podcast. Head over to councilka.org for the show notes of this episode and see exciting upcoming programs at CKA. That's councilka.org.